Amen. Please be seated. The passage I will begin with is on the insert in your bulletin. There will be several passages I refer to. I'll read the one there printed at the beginning and then refer to it again later at the third point. You see the outline there in front of you as well. This is the final sermon in a series that I'm doing called, Did God Actually Say? That comes from Genesis 3 comes from the time Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were told very clearly by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they did eat, they would die. They would surely die. But you know what happens. The devil comes in the form of a serpent and tries to convince Eve, and he does so successfully, that God's word isn't sufficient. Uh, We know that's not true, but Eve messed up in her understanding of what God's clear word was, and it just went downhill from there. And that's exactly what happens. When we misunderstand or we ignore or we twist God's word, it always leads to sin, misery, and death. That's the end result of rebellion against God. And he gives us his word uh, as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's because he loves us that he allows us to understand his design and purposes. And we have to have his revelation because we're sinners and we need God's grace and we need his spirit and we need his word in order to know how to live this life because our feelings will tell us something else. Our culture will tell us something else. So we have to have a clear lens. The lens has to be scripture looking at whatever's happening in the world and interpreting what's happening in the world in light of what scripture says, reacting to what's happening in the world based on what scripture says. But what happens for Christians often is the culture is so strong, and we live in it every day. There's no kidding. It's tough uh, to be in the minority when you think a certain way or act a certain way. It's tough to be an outsider or feel like one anyways. And so what happens is culture all of a sudden kind of moves in front of Scripture, and we look at all the people we know and what they're saying and what seems to be the consensus of thought. And instead of looking at Scripture first and then interpreting culture, we through the lens of culture, interpret Scripture and say, you know, did God actually say whatever it may be? So I've chosen four different areas that I think for us in our world, uh, I think Christians are struggling with. I hear Christians uh, maybe not saying outright, did God actually say, but in their life and in their actual choices, they're struggling uh, with what they know the Bible to say, what they've learned it to say. Uh, maybe haven't personally really understood it well, but have heard it to be said, and, and they're hearing something different in the world they're living in, in their high school or in their college, in their workplace, in their neighborhood, among their family members. So these issues that I have chosen to address, I think are kind of hot issues right now. They're issues we're facing, and I want to hope, I hope to equip you with a biblical framework, a lens to see the issues. And even look at a few of the issues that are often brought out and maybe uh, magnify to make it look like, see, look, here's an exception to all those uh, ways in which you think it couldn't be true what you say. And again, to step back to the Word and look through the lens of the Word uh, holistically and apply it to where we are today. That's the goal, anyways, of bringing this to you. The issue for today, the last one, and I struggle with whether to make the third sermon the fourth and the fourth the third, the issue of of marriage between a man and a woman being the third one, And here I'm going to talk about marriage and sexuality. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about this stuff, but I am, I know that we all here probably have watched enough television, have mobile devices, have 
eyes to see, hear the talks and discussions. These things are talked about. It's best we speak about them in terms of God's word in the church among believers and then talk among families about these things. One of the reasons we're kind of in the mess we are culturally is I think the church's lack of honest address of these issues that the Bible talks about all over the place. And so even as uncomfortable as it may be, it's important for us to really go after what God's word says about this. I would have put this before the other sermon for this reason. In the 60s, we had what was called the sexual revolution, and it really gave way to, the, to sexual liberation. And really, liberation is the thing that has promoted the whole same-sex marriage movement. It's really not about marriage. It's about liberation from old ways of thinking. It's about liberation from any rules someone might put on somebody. Uh, it's liberation from you telling me what your beliefs are and how they should impact me. It's, it's a total liberation that people really want. They want liberation from God's rule, which is not new, by the way. It's a, it's a common trait among people, and it perpetuates itself generation to generation. Certain cultures can see times of, of, of health and strength where there's less of that selfishness. But by and large, people will always struggle with this tendency to worship self and self's desires, self's feelings, more than what God says, more than God. So it's really a liberation movement we're seeing. But in the area of sexual ethics, it really manifests itself, and it becomes kind of the, the, the flashpoint for really what's a big worldview debate, indifference. The issue, though, for me is not to convince people in the world. My goal as a pastor is to strengthen you to recognize what God has told us and how he's given us his spirit and his word and his grace to live it out. And by doing that, you will have impact on those around you. To the degree, that's totally up to God. But it will make a difference as you seek to live out God's calling upon your life, upon our lives. With that introduction, I want to start by reading 1 Thessalonians 4. I chose 1 Thessalonians 4 out of literally dozens of passages that address the issue of marriage and sexuality. I picked it because Thessalonica had a really, really healthy church. It was one of the places in uh, Greece that had mature Christians. Uh, most of the churches Paul wrote to, there was some problem that brought up his need to write. Remember Corinthians and our study there. Here, though, the Thessalonians, they were walking well in the Lord. So I want you to notice, this is at the end of that book, some of the last things Paul says to the Thessalonians. And again, we'll return to this in the third point on the outline. But for now, as we begin, hear God's holy word, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 5. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your, sancti your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the gift of your Son. Not only has he paid for our sins, but he has brought redemption to bear on all areas of our lives. Without Jesus, we would be left to flounder in our relationships and especially in the foundational area of marriage and sexuality. 
Lord, because of Jesus, we can learn your design and be assured of your power to see it realized in our lives. Lord, we do acknowledge a struggle. We're sinners. Lord, we confess our sins in the area of marriage and sexuality. No matter what our particular situation in life, young and not married yet, single people wanting to be married, young married couples, partners who have been married for decades, perhaps some who have endured a divorce situation, whatever the situation, you have called us to honor your design for marriage and sexuality, and we each have our part to play. And Lord, we need your clarity about this matter. Lord, please make your words instruction to be more impacting than the skewed and contorted message of the world. Bring redemption to bear on our minds and desires as we hear the instruction of your holy, infallible, and timeless word. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. You know, there is a reality that I have to begin with. There's really uh, two points to this reality. The first one is our sin. You know, sin has touched every human being who has ever been born other than Christ. And for that reason, there's nothing about our senses or our feelings or our desires that can be trustworthy. It's all affected and impacted by sin. When we talk about marriage and sexuality, there may be a certain smugness that overcomes some, but I would challenge you, the rare few that you would be, if you're honest, that there if there's not challenge in this area of your life, there certainly is in several others. We've had three children uh, by childbirth, one by adoption. And I remember, I was shocked at how nosy Christians are about those things. Like, I remember people asking my wife, so where are you going to have the baby? How are you going to have the baby? Are you going to have the baby at home? Are you going to have the baby with the help of a midwife? Are you going to have the baby with pain meds? And I mean, stuff that we didn't really ask for their input on, but they were ready and willing to give it to us. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, as a theologian, when I heard the, those conversations, it was hard for me not to speak up. And being a guy, you know, guys, we can't really, we're not allowed to talk on that topic. We don't understand, which is true. But I remember the discussion about whether or not she should take some kind of pain meds. Now, I never really thought about it too much, to be honest with you, but I thought if she's not going to take it, I hope they give it to me while this is going on. (laughs) But the argument was you should have a natural childbirth. Now, I don't want to get into big debate about that. Don't send me any emails about what natural childbirth is. But let me tell you this. After I've read the Bible, there's no natural childbirth. Okay, there's nothing after the fall of man that has happened that's ever been natural. There's something that was a created order, and then there's what happens. But natural, that's a stretch. Listen to what it says in Genesis 3. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It's all the part of what the effects of the fall were, the curse that made childbearing so difficult. I point this out in this area just to say to you that the fall impacts every bit of our human experience. There's nothing that's quote-unquote natural anymore in the real sense. That is in the created sense that God initially intended it when we were without sin. So we have to be careful to recognize all of us are sinners to the core. All of us are totally depraved apart from the saving grace of God. In fact, what we need to understand marriage and sexuality is a a clear and robust doctrine of sin. Because if we understand sin, we'll understand why we are in the place we are culturally, and we'll also understand ourselves better. 
will also understand that God has come to renew us in Christ, to give us a deposit of his spirit so that by his grace we can start to sense victory over sin. But that victory is never complete, even for Christians, until glory. So there's a struggle that takes place. I almost called the sermon, did God actually say sexual purity is a lifelong struggle? Because it is. It's a battle. It's a, a constant struggle against the old man, that old sinful inclination. And if you've had experiences in your life that compound this, it's all the more difficult. You know how it is if you went from one behavior or habit before you were a believer, and God gave you some initial freedom from it. But then as you walk with Christ for a while, the temptation came up again. Now you have a certain power that the Spirit gives you to say no. You have accountability with the brethren to help you. But you know it's a real pull. So let's just get off high horses and be honest about how difficult this area is for every person, Christians included. And it would help us, I think, even with rapport in the overall discussion if we were more humble about our sinfulness in this area. I think what has happened is we've talked on the high horse, and then we've lived the lives of struggle, and we feel like hypocrites, so we won't say anything, and it only gets worse. When you don't discuss it, when you don't address it by Scripture, it gets worse. And then we feel less and less inclined to speak up about it because we feel hypocritical. Well, you are hypocritical. We are hypocritical. The difference is we throw ourselves upon Christ. We're sorry for our sins. We confess our sins openly and honestly, and we want cleansing. That's what we want everyone to experience. And you came here this morning to worship the God who cleansed you by Christ's blood. You didn't come here to have me beat you over the head with some ethical standard no one here can keep. Now at the same time, God's word is clear, and he gives commands to safeguard us. Your law is a delight to me because it safeguards. It, it keeps us in a safe place. It helps us experience joy where there's so much misery. So as believers who are redeemed, we can come at it with a certain approach. But recognize as we talk, we speak of sin. We're not saying that they do it and we don't have any problem with it. Such were once were all of us given over to it. The difference now is God's given us freedom from it. We don't have to be owned by it anymore. Well, I like what Moeller says when he writes on this topic. And he wrote a paper like 12 years ago that I found. He's writing a lot of stuff now, as many people are. Uh, but it's, it's timeless because it's based on the word. Moeller says, The biblical writers link holiness to happiness. In other words, if we're following God's precepts, there will be a, a happiness about that. And I think joy is probably a better word. Nevertheless, Moeller goes on to say, True human happiness comes in the fulfillment of sexual holiness. The attempt to enjoy sexual happiness without holiness is the root of sexual deviance. I think he's right on about this. Let's take this topic as the outline lays out for us. First, let's be reminded of God's design and intention for humanity. Now, a big reason why I want to present this to you is because I've been uh, somewhat startled by how many Christians I have heard uh, unable to give a clear biblical theology of marriage and sexuality. They know rules that their parents taught them, and we generally have a certain uh, decorum we keep, but we're not clear on how to explain to people the biblical framework, and that's what we have to have. That's what you have to have uh, as you live this life, especially in the day and age in which we live. I'll go to Genesis 1, 27 and 28 for God's design and intention for humanity. It's upheld throughout the scripture. Jesus himself in the gospels reaffirms this. We saw this last week a bit. 
But in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, listen to God's word. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. This is important. It's, 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 it's with purpose that God designs this way and Moses records it this way. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We addressed this passage a bit last week. I want to take another perspective on it for the topic at hand. But first, let's notice gender here, male and female, it's not an, a biological accident. It's not a social construction where he created two people and they decided what gender they would be. Uh, gender's not a construct of self. It's purposeful. It has design to it. It's intended to have a complementary relationship, one with the other. Gender is absolutely characterized by physical design. God designs us physically on purpose to align with our gender. There's a physical complementarity between the body of a man and the body of a woman, clearly. The discerning of gender is clarified most easily by physiology. We see this as a purposeful plan of God. Now, this is a, a, a big discussion today, isn't it? And it's worthy of our consideration for just a moment. What about a person born with both physical gender traits? One in 2,000 babies are born with a condition that can look like both sexes are present. Specialists can perform ultrasound, blood tests, chromosome analysis, even do exploratory surgery to find out what the true sex is. These are real conditions that occur. It's more often than you might think. Very few, though, of these babies are born with a true representation of both gender traits where it is difficult to discern based on physiology. But it does happen. Now, this again, this aspect of humanity falls under what has occurred after the fall. It's not the fault of the baby or the fault of the mother or the father. It's along the long list of defects that can happen to us physiologically because we're on this side of the fall. People born with these defects can have very, very difficult experiences. We have to have compassion about this. Not unlike other babies who were born with other defects that are life-changing, life-defining even. God's grace in living out one's gender identity is especially needed for people affected this way. As Christians, we should be aware that people really do suffer and strain with such a condition that they're born with. Patience and grace has to be extended. Humility and recognizing these things that happen that are exceptional. At the same time, understanding these are rare exceptions and don't alter the overall standard or don't define God's standard. We have to seek God humbly for how to minister to anyone in this situation. What about a person who's born physically as a man but thinks they should be a woman? That's their sense, their feeling, their desire. Something you can never really argue with if someone says, I feel this way or, I, or I, this is the way I think I should be. Well, sin does not only affect our bodies, but our minds as well. We're confused about a great many things, all of us. That's a remnant of original sin. A person's experience added to the, the general state of sin can throw us into all kinds of mental crises. 
Certainly, there can be physiological issues that affect our minds and our feelings. You know how you feel when you're sick. You feel totally different than when you're, when you're well. So physiology or something going on in the body can affect the way we feel or what our desires are. This side of the fall, remember, a robust and un- biblical understanding of sin helps us understand that you cannot trust your feelings or your desires solely. It's not that they're not important, not that they might not indicate for us something we need to know, but they cannot be the baseline for how we act out. If a person is struggling in this way, add to this a general cultural promotion of the idea of finding one's true self or being liberated from any of the norms everybody else is holding themselves to, a celebration of self, you add to this, this to the person who's struggling in that area, and now it pushes them completely in a direction. Reach, recently, as you are all aware, I'm sure, you can't even go to a grocery store without seeing a picture in a much publicized situation with Bruce Jenner, he revealed his long-time struggle and attempt to be identified as a woman rather than a man. Prime example of how our feelings need direction. Our feelings need correction. But today's world says to go with your feelings, and in his case, it led him to a terrible struggle over the years, which he has now revealed. But what's sad about his struggle is that it will not end just because he's dressing a certain way and pumping his body with hormones. It'll still go on because he hasn't found ultimately what he really needs. And pause here. This is true for all of us, whatever that struggle or thing we're striving after is that hopefully as a believer you know is an idol out there, whatever it may be. I'll be happy if I have this or if I do this or I become that. Any of us can fall into this kind of thinking for sure. Russell Moore, writing on this particular situation, says that the hope for Bruce Jenner and for others like him is not to alter the body with surgery or to flood their systems with hormones. The answer is to realize that all of us are born alienated from what we were created to be. We don't need to fix what happened in our first birth. We need a new birth altogether. I want to say something clearly. I do not believe scripturally that when a person comes to Christ, it means they will no longer struggle with sin. Read Romans chapter 7, and if you can't see a man, the Apostle Paul, struggling with obeying God, even though he was an apostle, if you can't see that, then you're, you're just not reading the, the face value of what the text says. Coming to Christ, though, provides an anchor for the soul and a rudder for our emotions when we're confused. At this side of glory, there may be things that constantly assail us, that keep coming up in our lives. It may not be this area of marriage and sexuality for you, but it could be some other area, and it just keeps coming at you. You ask God to deliver you from it, just like Paul asked for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, and you wrestle with God over it, and for some reason, God keeps you dependent on him because of the struggle you're having and the strain you're having. It doesn't mean that you're not a child of God. This means that the Spirit is at work in you, and he's holding you to the battle. But back to God's design for humanity now. In Genesis 1, and 28, we see God's intention for mankind to spread his glory, God's glory, over the earth. Man and woman created in his image, be fruitful, multiply, cover the globe. By creating man and woman in his own image and giving, him, giving them watch care over the earth, that would assure God's glory be spread in all creation. 
to encourage and advance the spreading and multiplying. God gave marriage as the union between a man and a woman typified by the physical one flesh act. Throughout the Bible, we see a clear complementary relationship between the man, a man and a woman. We see man and woman as equal in dignity and status, but with differing roles, especially in the institution of marriage. It's God's design, and it's its intention for humanity. And that leads us to the second point, considering it more fully. God's design for the marriage union. This helps us understand the place of sexuality. One of the reasons this, the culture struggles so badly with this issue is that the designer has made sexuality as part of the marital union. The culture has taken sexuality and disconnected it from the marital union, which now makes it into a, an individual gratification event. It makes it about self. It makes it about something I have, my sexuality, and I own it, and I steward it the way I want, rather than it being a gift from the creator to the marital union, the one flesh union. And when you separate them, you have all sorts of a mess. Genesis 2, though, gives us his design and intention for the marriage union in brief. There's much more in the Bible about this than just Genesis 2, but it gives us the beginning. Genesis 2, starting at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So the, the marriage union, you can see very plainly here, and as upheld in other places in Scripture, the marriage union is more than just a contract. The marriage union is more than just a partnership. A man and woman are made with bodies and souls. The bodies are good, and the souls are good in their original creation. The body's never evil or the soul evil. They're both impacted by the fall, but we ought not think of one as being evil or separate in that respect. One's good, one's bad. One's spiritual, one's, one's natural in a bad sense. It's not, there's no such uh, dichotomistic thinking in God's design. Uh, there's a physical union that takes place in marriage that typifies what happens spiritually. There's a spiritual union that takes place in marriage. We read in Malachi how the Spirit of God attends that marriage covenant. That's why it's called a covenant. In fact, there's a third party in a marriage, and it's God. Because God designed it, and he's part of it. And he brings two together to become one. Sexual unity is reserved, therefore, for the marriage relationship. It's designed for that. That's the way it's used right. The Bible's not prudish or conservative about its description of sexuality. In fact, you see it all over the place, in the Old Testament especially, and you see where the misuse of sexuality gets the participants. It always leads to shame, to guilt, to destruction in the family, into the marriages, and in the culture. The Bible's depiction of the wrong use of sex is not an endorsement of it. It's not presenting a family value. It's simply showing what happens in the real world when people don't follow God's design. It's there for us. The biblical writers affirm the goodness of sexuality and sexual expression in marriage. Sexuality is a source of pleasure and bonding for the married couple. I heard a sermon once that gave four Ps that were very helpful to me, and I just passed them on in brief. There are several reasons for 
sexuality in the bonds of marriage. Procreation is the first, means that we can be fruitful and multiply, as God promises us and tells us. It's for pleasure. It's a gift from God that promotes human joy. It's for partnership. It strengthens the covenant between husband and wife in their body-soul nexus. It's for purity. It's a barrier against sin coming in to the marriage relationship. I think, again, to say it to you, to simplify the problem we face in culture, why it's such a a nonstop affront, why our, our young people hear me saying this or hear their parents saying this, but then their friends in high school and college, wherever they are, they're all just treating sexuality as something that it's your choice to do because it's for you, it's yours, it's up to you. It's even it's a tool to be used to gain people in your life that you want or to keep people in your life. It's, it's all about a something, a tool to be used by myself. And it's just old-fashioned when you talk in terms of just marriage. But you can see what's happened. They've taken sex out of its proper place and put it into the individual need category. They've taken it out of marriage, which is the very thing it's, designed to promote. And really, I think nowhere is the skewed and dangerous cultural view of sex seen more vividly than in in, in the proliferation and the massive explosion of the porn industry in this country, especially online. Uh, You couple the vehicle of internet porn with all the mobile devices we now have, all the access people have to it. You know, the days of embarrassingly buying a magazine in the drugstore is over. It's not necessary. Most kids don't even know what that day is about. It just flashes in front of the screen. Even if you try to screen it out, there's a lot of it that'll just come through. Multiple, multiple layers of danger and sin related to porn. But at its base, it's about the worship of self, which is the opposite of the purpose of marriage. Marriage is intended to enhance the worship of God by serving our spouse as Christ has served us. But with porn, that's about the person. That's about self-satisfaction. It doesn't consider the fact that the people on the other side, if it's a man watching something, is somebody's daughter or could be somebody's wife. They're only worried about self-gratification at that moment. And that's self-worship, and that's idolatry. And God, your God who loves you, doesn't want you to feel the pain of worshiping a false idol. We have to address this particular issue, especially among men, if we're going to see much in the way of improvement in Christian marriages, because the stats are not healthy for us. Scripture gives sex to marriage for the purpose of strengthening the marital relationship and bringing both partners into a deeper relationship with Christ and each other. And any amount of that sexuality that you give to a different outlet is stolen from the relationship that it's intended for, and it will impact that relationship inevitably. The final point that I want you to hear goes back to the text that I began with. This is concerning God's call for control and restraint in an age of unbridled sexuality where sex is divorced from marriage and is really just an individual tool. Al Mohler says sexuality is one of God's good gifts and the source of much human happiness. At the same time, once expressed outside its intended context of marital fidelity, it can become one of the most destructive forces in human existence. Paul addresses sexual purity in just about every epistle he writes. I think in every one of them. The reason I chose the passage from 1 Thessalonians is important, I think. Because the Thessalonian church was the most mature in the New Testament from all that seems to be evidenced by what Paul says. They seem to really be walking with Christ well. And 
they're looking forward to the return of Christ. Uh, they're looking forward to meeting Jesus. They don't have a sense of, oh, I want to hide this or hide that. When Jesus comes back, we're ready to see Christ. And so he writes to them in these final words of this epistle. With that context, hear what he says now. And I want you to gather why I think this is important using this passage to close these thoughts. 1 Thessalonians 4, the first two verses. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. What a word from their pastor. Uh, they take into the teaching that the apostles brought, and they were walking in it, just as you are doing, and I want you to do it more and more, their pastor says to them. Now that's different than Corinthians. You all remember our study in Corinthians. And truthfully, if you looked at the other churches, they all struggled more than Thessalonica did. Thessalonica did. That's just the way it looks. Verse 2 says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Another reference to the body of teaching. Now, you know what comes next, but let's pretend you didn't. You just read that introduction. Boy, I wonder what he's going to say next. What would he say to summarize all the teaching that he thought was important for the Thessalonians to grab hold of right now? If he only had one thing he could say to them as he closed the book, what would it be? I'm sure it would be love one another. Maybe it would be be honest with one another. Tell the truth. Maybe it would be serve the poor. Maybe it would be put others before yourself. All things that are important and fruits of God's spirit in our lives. What would he emphasize for, from his prior teaching to a group of people who are very mature and are already walking with Christ? What would he say? Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Wow, that's an unusual thing to say to a mature church. Certainly, a mature church doesn't struggle with this. That's clearly not the case. And this isn't a fringe command, if there is such a thing. For this is the will of God. What's the will of God? Your sanctification, your growth in God's grace, that you abstain from sexual immorality. See how important sexual purity is for the body of Christ? Even for a mature group of believers who know God's word, it is something that can sneak up and snatch us. In fact, it's one of the things that so affronts church leaders. You know, every week you read of another pastor who has fallen in this area. And you can imagine why. It is insidious. Uh, all the other areas, you know, a pastor can walk before you and you pretty much have checks and balances. You may not like everything I do, but you know what it is. And you know who he is. And, and you, but there's secret areas of one's life, and this area can fall into that. And this is why uh, I think Paul warns here and warns us in other places, flee sexual immorality. It doesn't say debate with it. It says flee from it. And here we have it again to the whole congregation. And this is a congregation made up of young people, married people, unmarried people, old people, every kind of people. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He knows that sexual immorality ultimately is a worshiping of self. And on the road of self-worship takes us away from the worship of God, which puts us in a perilous spot. And God won't share his glory and his devotion with anyone, and he loves you too much to let you go down that road. Verse 3 again into verse 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And here's a real unpopular point with culture. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Wait a minute. It's how I feel. It's how I'm made. It's natural. It's what I should do. How dare you tell me control? We have no appetite for self-denial at all. 
even though it's all around us in our lives. Every one of you practices self-denial in various areas. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We would expect people who are not believers to be unable to bridle those desires because they are without the Spirit. And so they have all the remnant of sin working in its full capacity. And even God's restraining grace must hold some of that back. However you want to quantify it, we recognize that people who don't believe in God won't have that assistance. But for the people of God, we have an ability based on the Spirit of God living in us that can help us in this time of struggle and strain and challenge and temptation. Paul issues a, control for, a call for self-control. Not in the passion of the lust, of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You know, we hunger, we thirst, we have sexual desire. We don't, if we don't control these things, they'll control us. But today we have a culture that says, if you want to get it, don't deny yourself of this natural thing that you should have. We live in a day that promotes self-gratification, immediate satisfaction. Denial is part of this life, and we'll be called to deny things in our lives at various stages of our lives, whatever it may be. You think maybe to yourself for a moment, but I'm single, you're married, you don't really understand. I can agree that I may not, but there's probably five things in my life you don't understand either that are difficult for me that I have to deny because God's calling. It's not a struggle for you, but it is for me, and we could go throughout the, the church family just like that. But all of us have a part to play in this. Some of it is self-denial at some point. God may have somebody for you at some point. Who knows what epic it is, but it doesn't change what God calls us to and how it affects all of us as we seek to live this out. Even in the marital relationship, you are constantly practicing a certain level of denial by being with one person in a culture that says that doesn't matter. The fall has radically altered our original nature and will. I do want to address one question that comes up often. What if a person says they're born this way? I I was born with this attraction. Fill in the blank. Again, back to our doctrine of sin, to be realistic. At one time, we were wired to think and act along certain lines and boundaries as God created us. But after the fall, a certain reset button happened, and everything became jumbled. Some will have a bent towards anger. Some will have a bent towards greed. Some will have a bent towards sexual immorality. Some will struggle with this kind of thing or the other thing. It doesn't, uh, it could be all manner of things. All of these are sinful activities, and we're not to be identified with any of them. We'll struggle against them, but we shouldn't be identified by them. Yes, it will be harder for some to resist and battle certain sins. Someone who says they're born with this sexual uh, attraction. God gives them grace in the midst of that, and all of us grace in the midst of that. You know, you add to these natural propensities that may happen if we're born this way or that way, or that is the certain thing we struggle with. If you add to those natural things that may happen, meaning sinful natural, broken circumstances, relational things, things that happen to us, it becomes very complex and very confusing, and our feelings tell us all sorts of things. How could we possibly live as God's called us to with all of this coming at us? Paul says to the Corinthians, of all people who struggle along these lines in manifold ways, he says to them and he says to us, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You think you're the only one struggling with this, but you're not. It's common to man. God is faithful, though, 
and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I don't think that this escape that God provides is always just some magical thing that goes off in your head before you're about to sin and stops you. I think one of the escapes we have is sitting right next to you, sitting around us. It's the body of Christ. It's people being honest about their sin, confessing their sins to one another and to God, and being honest about our mutual need for safety and accountability with each other. We've got to be open about this, open with our children about this. Tell them the truth about what these things lead to. If you have a, a past that, that grates on you and you're worried for your children, don't keep that from them. Share with them in right timing what this means and how this is impacting you, how you don't want to see them go down this same road. And share that with others. Uh, this is a way of escape that God's given us uh, to go down the road of sin and misery and death is to have the, the body of the redeemed coming together to share with one another about God's grace that is always there for us. Because when we fall, John says, when you sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I think that the way that God provides a way of escape is often right in the midst of believers. I'll close with something that Al Mohler said and make one observation. These principles are of crucial importance as Christians grapple with the sexual confusion of postmodern America with some denominations debating homosexual clergy and same-sex marriage, evangelical Christians who believe the Bible must hold fast to the biblical wisdom, knowing that God has revealed his perfect pattern for human sexuality within the Bible. Those who brazenly, brazenly reject the authority of the Bible on issues of sexuality actually reject the authority of the Creator to determine what is right and wrong, natural and unnatural, allowed and forbidden. Ultimately, we must choose between biblical authority and sexual anarchy. And I think that's where we're at. We really do have to choose between those two. And I want to say this one thing in observation to, well, be more than one thing. But especially to those of you contemplating marriage, I want you to think about God's design for this and see how it works when things go well, when God guides and directs in this way by his grace. It starts with two believers who have Christ as the most important centerpiece of their life. These two believers make a covenant together, a covenant first with God, who gives the institution in the union and the covenant, and then with each other. So it's a threefold covenant, in a sense, between the man, the woman, and God. Sexual expression, then, after that point, helps solidify the one flesh union. It's typified by selflessness. Sexual expression will normally then bring children which fulfills our call to be fruitful and multiply. Sexual expression will safeguard the marriage against adultery, which breaks the covenant. Now, here's the problem. When the order gets messed up, it's difficult to correct the disarray. When sexual expression happens before marriage, at the core, it's a self-satisfying reason that a couple engages in this way. For the woman, she might be thinking, this is how I'll keep the guy, and for the guy, he's just thinking about himself. Okay, whatever the case, it's self-gratification. I want to keep him as self-gratification. Or it's just for myself, it's self-gratification. So there's your foundation. That's what you started. And now you're kind of locked in, you think to yourself, because I gave this away, now I've got to stay in this. But it started at self-gratification level, no matter how you spin it. So the union starts with a level of selfishness that's hard to correct. 
And by the way, even if you build the foundation on Christ first, you will always struggle with selfishness. But when you foundation, the foundation level set this way, it's all the more challenging. So then, if children come before marriage, or marriage happens because of children, it places the children at the center of the relationship, which is also wrong. And then, if the marriage doesn't survive, which there's a high likelihood it won't, what does it say to the children? It's because of me, the child thinks. A covenant with God hasn't even come into the equation yet. And that's what happens when the order gets reversed. Now, I've seen God's grace poured out on many, uh, but I've also seen the pattern have a devastating effect over and over and over again. Do you see how the order of God's design makes so much sense? So, as single people, remember, it may be God's will for you to be someone's one flesh partner. So don't give away something intended for another. As single people... Uh, that person that you're dating may be someone else's one flesh partner someday, so don't take something away that's intended for another. As single people, don't give away something now that should be reserved for your husband or your wife. And you don't know for sure that they're your husband or your wife until they're your husband or your wife. I'll say especially to the ladies, to the sisters, don't believe him when he says, oh, come on, we'll get married eventually. Don't believe that. It says in Hebrews 13, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keeping the marriage bed undefiled is all of our duties. Wherever you are in your life, you have a part to play in upholding the marriage bed by how you act out on what God, what you feel and what God has called you to do with regard to those feelings. Married people may hear a message like this and be encouraged and affirmed, but on the other hand, they could be convicted and concerned. Married people, you have a God-given outlet for service, expression, and gratification. Celebrate this, but be warned against intrusion of others into your marital intimacy, whether with living people in person or as images of living people on a screen. There are different levels of cheating, but cheating is cheating. Be ever vigilant, my brothers and sisters. Imagine a car going down a hill and it's lost its brakes. There's no way to stop it, and there are children at the other end of it. And you've got to do something. So you jump into the car, and all you can do is steer. You can't put the brakes on, but you can steer, and you can get it out of harm's way. I hate to put it any other way, but sometimes in our life, that's what it's like as it relates to sexuality. But recognize God's given us grace to steer the car in certain directions, and he can slow it down, and he can put it in a place where it's useful and helpful and glorifies him. And we need him for this. We can't do it without him. Close with Paul's words to Paul. Paul's words to the Romans. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We certainly need a compass in a storm, and your word is a compass in a difficult cultural storm. Pray for every brother and sister here today that they would see how this message applies to their particular situation, how we may all uphold marriage and sexuality, how we would lean upon you for your grace, call upon you for your spirit, be honest with one another in the body of believers how we might 
encourage one another with accountability and care and compassion. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.